0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby.
1: My name is Anastasia.
0: And you're listening to Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, The Voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We are everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. And we have a COVID update for you. And with that said, I'm like... Goodness, man. This thing is, is still around. I don't think we're going to get rid of it. I hate to be a pessimist, but um in terms of what we've seen as far as the leveling off in vaccination rates throughout the country, the rise of new variants, right? We got that Delta variant that is floating around out there. Um, and so yeah, this this is a disease that more and more as we go forward is likely to be with us for a very very long time, if not forever. What's up with you, Anastasia? How do you feel about this?
1: Um, I'm a bit concerned, especially now with um, how the Delta variant is very quickly becoming the prominent uh, variant that is being found in the caseloads. Like, mm-hmm. they're saying that it has doubled to about 20% of the cases. So mm-hmm. it, it's becoming... Um, It's becoming a somewhat scary situation because, you know, everyone is opening up. I know that in New York City, everything's going to be, quote unquote, back to normal by July. Um, And we're starting to see an increase in this Delta variant. Um, And, you know, they're saying that it's 60% more transmissible than the Alpha variant, which is the one that was found in the UK before. So it's, it's kind of weird. It's a weird situation because we're opening up. We're trying to enjoy our summer and but we're seeing now that the people that wanted to be vaccinated are getting vaccinated. And now it's just the people that don't really want to get vaccinated that are left. And it's kind of worrisome because if they don't get vaccinated and this Delta variant's going around, what's going to happen next as everyone is out and about enjoying their brunch, you know, and going to the parks and the beaches and everything else?
0: And, ladies and gentlemen, for those that are just hopefully not just hearing about this, but this Delta variant is the B16172 variant, all of these numbers, right? Uh, but one thing that's also been found about this is that it is possibly uh, more virulent, meaning a person that gets sick with this particular variant might have more severe disease. Now, we contrast that, right, with what Anastasia just said, and that. Everything is opening up. People are excited because and I think there is reason for this positivity that we see all around us. And that is because even in the face of this, we've seen still seen caseloads in the country continuing to fall um, over the last 30 days. The death rates continuing to fall. Um, and we've also seen, I mean, even though it's taken a longer time and we're still Probably not going to meet that 70% goal of, uh, or 70% vaccinated goal by July 4th, right? That is the president's goal, President Biden's goal. Um, We've still seen this leveling off or a decrease in the number of cases, hospitalizations, deaths. And one thing, too, that I'm actually more positive about especially when we talk about where we were a year and change ago, right, when this all first went down, was that we are better at identifying and treating this disease. We've come a very long way. I think that's one reason for, you know, immense optimism, especially when we talk about some of the therapeutics that we have available, uh, these monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir. We've learned the value of steroids like dexamethasone in individuals with severe complications from COVID, but also we have the vaccines. And that is all in addition to all of the other measures to reduce the spread of this illness. And even for individuals, just reduce the chances of coming down with this. And so that's what we're trying to, that's why we did this update, right? Because I know people, including myself, and I know you, Anastasia, I'm tired of COVID. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) As much as I'm fascinated by, by this illness and fascinated at just how much we've been able to do over the last year and change. And I'm talking about all of humanity here. This is Maurice Elby being his true, you know, <laughs> positive self. Um I'm amazed at we're how far we've come, but really this is just, you know, a dragon and, and bear with us, ladies and gentlemen, because I think it is worth just going in and reiterating right how important it is um, that we can still do a lot to protect ourselves. And that really starts with just knowing what we're dealing with. So, yeah. as we said, we have this. Yeah. And and that's, that's the biggest thing. That There's the also thing.
1: Um, the thing. New York City is now allowing people to, like, make appointments to, like, have your vaccine done at home. So, we're expanding our accessibility, um, which is great. You know, like, COVID is awful. And it has done a lot of damage and in more ways other than just you know everyone's health and the death rate um it has impacted almost every facet of our society so seeing Mm -hmm. how the city is um taking steps in order to ensure that everyone has access to the vaccine by opening up these programs is also like one of like the very very thin silver linings i want to say um where they're offering in-home COVID vaccines. So now that even people that have mobility issues, um, they can also get the vaccine as well. So that, that's also a great step, right? Because we are a very, very populous city. Um, I just mm-hmm. learned recently- To say the least. I just learned recently from um, the, the- We had the mayor preliminaries, the ranking voting um, this week. And I learned that we have a greater population than 38 states- So, you know, ensuring that we hit that 70 percent, at least 70 percent vaccination um, Mm -hmm. is probably like something that we should move forward in every possible way. So having the ability to have someone come in and give you the vaccine is also a great way for everyone that could not maybe potentially get to a location, and stuff like that. I think that it's a great step towards increasing the access for everyone. We're getting there.
0: Yes, indeed. We are getting there. So let's talk about where we are, right, as a nation, uh, in terms of the vaccination progress here in the United States. So, as far as the percentage of the total population that have had uh, at least one dose, we are at fifty three point seven percent. When we talk about the number of individuals that have gotten, right there two vaccines. So two shots of Moderna or Pfizer or one shot of the Johnson and Johnson, right. And two weeks after that second administration of the, the Pfizer or Moderna uh, vaccine, or that, that one dose of Johnson and Johnson, two weeks after that dose, you are considered to be fully vaccinated. So in terms of fully vaccinated individuals in this country, Um, adults we're talking about we're talking about 45.6 percent of the population and And i think you
1: bring up a great point i'm sorry to cut you off Mm -hmm. but like i think that it's good to reiterate that you're not fully vaccinated until like two weeks after right because people i've heard um some miscommunication or some misinformation where it's like oh i got my second dose i'm fully vaccinated no you have, it takes up to two weeks to take full effect. Um, so, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, I got my second dose, I'm going to go out, I'm like fully vaccinated, you know, I don't have to like fully wear my mask, etc., etc. I can relax my, you know, regulations and how I protect myself. And it's like, no, take that two weeks, be extra cautious so that after two weeks, after your second dose or, you know, your uh, one dose of Johnson & Johnson, mm-hmm. then you can be like, okay, I'm probably fully vaccinated now. Like the vaccines have done their job. But until those two weeks. Maximal
0: protection. Yep, yep. two weeks.
1: Those two weeks, that two week time period doesn't mean that you do have that maximal protection against COVID. So it's just an important thing, right? Because if I know that there are countries, everyone wants to travel, right? Everyone wants to go out. We've been, we're tired of staying home, especially in our tiny apartments here in New York City. Um, So we want to travel. But again, a lot of the places that you need to travel to either a require um, an exam 72 hours prior to your flight latest 72 hours, or Mm -hmm. you need to be vaccinated, right? So if you get your shot fully
0: vaccinated, yeah, you're fully
1: vaccinated. (laughs) Yeah, fully vaccinated. That means that you really shouldn't plan to leave until after two weeks of your second dose or your one dose of Johnson and Johnson. So just to reiterate, two weeks. After two weeks.
0: So what you do is get you, that, you get that that second shot. Right. And then that will be the Netflix and chill night. And what you do is watch all your uh, anticipated vacation videos or do your research and itinerary planning. That's how I would do it. <laughs> and then two weeks later, you're free. You do what You do what you want and and enjoy um, just knowing right with that sense of relief that you are maximally Uh, Or at least in the vast majority of cases, you will likely be at that that threshold where you have a significant degree of protection from this illness.
1: Right. That's also like because the Delta variant is showing up. Right. And the CDC is saying that it's probably it's looks like it's more transmissible and it's fitter and it's more effective. So, you know, you want to ensure that you do have the maximum protection so you want to ensure that you are taking the right precautions during that post two week period um, of your second dose or your one shot of Johnson and Johnson, because you know this thing is still out there, right? Like you might go to brunch, you might um, have, you might go out and stuff, and then not realize that there might be someone there that is asymptomatic, right? Not not to like put fear, right, but it's more just like be careful during that two weeks.
0: Yes. And one interesting population that I think it's really always just we got to pay attention to this group. And this is the group older than 65 years of age. So individuals 65 years of age and older, 85, 87.5 percent vaccinated in this country, 77.4 percent that have received right uh, at least two doses of the Moderna or Pfizer and got that second dose of Johnson and Johnson uh, two weeks after those doses, so seventy-seven percent of that group, sixty-five and older in this country that have been vaccinated, and again, this is the group that we've seen hospitalizations, death rates, other complications from COVID and especially severe COVID. We've seen that all l- fall off <clears throat> completely. Just worked the shift yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, and I can tell you that it's the individuals coming in with suspected. COVID 19 and complications from this illness um, are in the younger age bracket. They are individuals that, for various reasons, have not uh, been able to be vaccinated. And so, as far as the efficacy of this intervention, I think this is very, like, unbelievably firmly established at this point. And so, again, this is something that we uh, really advise you to consider. Right. Looking at everything um, here in health in Harlem. And one thing I I think we really need to uh, address in this is that it's not just about death rates. It's not just about hospitalization it's not even just about the financial toll that we've seen this take throughout the country. But this one entity that we've seen really become a a more prominent feature of the disease and individuals that have had sequelae meaning uh long-term effects of this illness is this long hauler syndrome it actually has various name long long hauler syndrome um uh long covid various names for it but this is something that we've seen really just become a significant concern amongst individuals that have had SARS-CoV-2 infection um one thing that's interesting about this is that there's no correlation with the severity of disease right so individuals that had mild symptoms individuals that had more serious symptoms and even complications um such as you know pneumonia um myocarditis or inflammation of the heart renal issues or kidney issues uh doesn't matter any individual that have come that has come down with this infection is prone to developing this long hauler syndrome. And essentially what it is, is just prolonged symptoms after an initial SARS-CoV-2 infection.
1: So so, what are some of those symptoms? Because I mean, I've heard of the term, but there's not much going around other than what I see on Twitter of people mentioning how they're still being impacted by the effects of COVID or what medications they suddenly have to start taking every day as um, a result of dealing with COVID. So what are some of the things that constitute as long COVID?
0: So long COVID, basically, these are symptoms that can persist, right? Four weeks after an active SARS-CoV-2 infection, individuals can still have symptoms. actually there's even uh, literature out there where individuals seem seemingly completely recovered, right so everything after the initial phase of infection um, and even individuals having symptoms, they've seemed to recover fully, everything was going great and then they have a recurrence of symptoms and they can range from things like tiredness or fatigue, difficulty thinking or concentrating. Uh, some individuals you might hear it commonly referred to as brain fog, headaches, individuals experiencing loss of taste and or smell, even dizziness, breathlessness. I've heard a range of complaints. Some individuals with uh, chronic pain syndrome, so pain in their extremities or achiness throughout their body. There are some individuals that have chest pain, uh, persistent cough. There are even reports of individuals having fever on and off or just feeling very warm, right? And One thing too is that these symptoms tend to get worse. It seems like when individuals are active. So, one thing that's been uh, a major concern is on productivity, right, Uh, going forward. And we talked about the the financial implications of this illness in terms of the lockdowns and everything that we saw um, in the initial pandemic, right? The initial outbreak. But individuals that develop this long COVID or long hauler syndrome, they also can be significantly debil- debilitated where they can't even work as they normally do. And so um, individuals, you know, not being able to make a living for themselves, um, having to have modified duty um, in their workplaces, some individuals, right, not being able to go work back to work at all and having to be on uh, disability or even, you know, just unemployed, so this is a very serious concern, so serious that we've seen uh, actually pushes all around the country, right? This is at the, the government level, even patient advocacy groups really talking about this as an emerging problem uh, where we might have thousands, potentially millions of adults that suffer from this and, you know, dealing with this on a, for a very long time. Because we really don't have a lot of information uh, about what individuals are pers- uh, are predisposed to developing this and, you know, how long these symptoms might last. We do know that there are individuals that, you know, months and months later, um, I have a, a colleague actually that was, you know, sick, you know, back last summer and is still experiencing symptoms, you know. And so this is something Since that we really summer, need to think about.
1: Mm -hmm. since last summer. Wow, that's almost a year now.
0: It's almost a year.
1: So your colleague recovered from COVID. And then is still essentially, even though the test will probably say negative, he still feels as though he's going through COVID or some of the symptoms of COVID.
0: This person still has symptoms, still not 100%. And this is not isolated to that individual, right? This is what many people are experiencing throughout the country. Now, there is still much to be learned about this condition. Um, as we as far as we said, um, you know, like we said, as far as risk factors for developing this, how long, uh, what treatments are available for these in- individuals, and even the rates, right? There's no defined data on the rate of occurrence of this um, or the incidence of this for individuals that have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. So there's definitely a lot to be learned, but this is something that is real, right? Because I think in the past, you know, there was always a tendency, even when things, when we talk about uh, Lyme disease, for instance, right? And it's something that took decades for us to learn that, yes, there are acute complications related to Lyme disease, right? This tick-borne illness, Uh, But then we're learning that there are individuals that have long lasting symptoms and complications from that illness. And so this is similar. And there are other viral infections. um, uh, So, not, you know, Lyme disease being more bacterial, but there are other viral infections uh, similar, just similar to SARS CoV 2 that we know have caused long term symptoms in individuals with this seems to be very different because there are just so many individuals and actually um, a patient that I just recently cared for that, you know, in listening to everything, examining the patient and knowing their prior history of having had a COVID-19 diagnosis, that that was the most likely thing that I said, you know, to this person that um, I think that they were suffering from long hauler syndrome and they were, you know, really, uh, symptomatic and just having a lot a lot of difficulty and so it's not just the death rates the hospitalization rates it's not just the complications right that we've uh seen and, and that have become really prominent in the news media um, and even just in the medical community that we think of when we think about covid we think about those complications but this is something that can be very very long lasting and that can um, really impact the lives of of those affected and those around them.
1: It seems like this is just another reason why people should go out and get their vaccines.
0: <laughs> That's the argument that I make, <laughs> or at least <laughs> consider, right? And, and one thing, too, that we want you to take home uh, from this show is just really, this is still, we're still in the midst of this pandemic, and we still need to take this seriously, especially when we talk about these complications um, that individuals are still suffering, right? We've seen the rates going down, but this is not down to zero. That's that's a fact, and this stuff is still circulating. And especially when we talk about uh, variants such as the Delta variant that is going around and gaining traction here in the United States, we have to be mindful, right, and serious about how we address this as individuals, um, as a community, and as a society. And that entails everything that we talked about, um, everything from the basic hand hygiene, right? That stuff still hasn't gone away. If anything, I'm hoping that that's something that sticks for the rest yes. of time <laughs> for all humanity. Like, let's we always should Masking. have been washing our hands and covering, you know, uh, coughing into the crook of our elbows and staying home when we're sick. Um, hopefully we can get some legislative changes that can really support. And I think we are on that track support individuals so that we can take that time to get better and not make everyone else sick. Uh, but we really just need to be right careful as we go forward, because this is still out there and there are still people having these complications. And yes, I agree with you, Anastasia, not to shove it down people's throat. But a, a big part of that is considering vaccination, because then we could nip all of that stuff uh, in the bud.
1: I'm also Even all for. Even um... before the bud,
0: right? Just not get it.
1: I'm also Mm -hmm. all for keeping masks, at least during like flu season, because I'm pretty sure that the flu rate was almost practically zero. This is like a side point. But, you know, if we can mask up during flu season in the upcoming years, more than happy to keep doing that. um, As long as I, you know, I don't get hit with the flu or with COVID, because we don't know if we're going to be dealing with this in the future as well. Um, But Dr. Shelby brings up a very good point. Um, we are still learning about how COVID will really impact us in the upcoming years. And, you know, only time will tell, right? Like people are getting hit with long haul COVID and it, from what Dr. Salby saying, it doesn't seem like there seems to be that much of an end in sight in terms of these symptoms, right? Like yes. his colleague is still reiterating one year, post COVID infection, still dealing with some of the symptoms, um so it is very important for us to take the necess- continue taking the necessary precautions in order to at least mitigate the risk as much as possible so that we don't have to you know deal again with what seems to be still the unknown right because we haven't we don't have the full literature of the exact impact that covid has on us either physically or um in terms of what complications may come up and not everyone has access to primary care because of lack of insurance and stuff. So it will just make everything more complicated when dealing with long COVID. So I don't I don't know. It seems like from what you're saying that the emergency room seems to or the emergency department seems to have been seeing these cases. Um, so do you think that there might be an increase in like patients coming in with long COVID?
0: Well, we don't see them you know, where where I I see a lot of practitioners seeing these patients is actually in their primary care, um, physicians offices, um, wherever they get primary care, uh, for that matter. Um, that is one thing that has really, I think that's the, the specialty group that has really just been dealing with more and more patients like this because right after they get out of the acute phase of the illness and they're, you know, not having some of the complications that we mentioned earlier, they go back to their primary care doctors. And that's one group that I've really been hearing this about, you know, emergency medicine. (laughs) We are not the ones out there shouting, hey, this is, you know, a major complication and raising the awareness about this entity. This is something that I found out primarily through my colleagues that have been taking care of COVID patients over the long term. Right. After they've been um, after all of those initial uh, complications and severe severe illness was dealt with. It was the a lot of the people on the front lines in primary care that identified this, that said, hey, you know, I have patients coming in weeks, months after having had covid and they are still not back to baseline. Right. And that's one group um, that has been really vocal about this are individuals that are practicing in primary care, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, people that are looking after people over the long term and that know patients very, very well. Right. These are people that have been sometimes taking care of uh, some of these patients for years. And so they see the change. They know that person that maybe ran, you know, four or five miles a day and was super active and productive and at the heights of their careers. And now after having had COVID-19, they get breathless. They can't do those activities anymore. They can't be as productive as they once were. And so that is the, the group that really sort of brought this to uh, attention, the attention of the medical community, the public health community, where this is something that is really recognized as a serious complication of COVID-19.
1: It seems like this might also take a mental toll on people, you know, Mm -hmm. like going from running four miles to being breathless when starting to run. It's, you know, there's the physical toll and then there's the mental toll. Like, how do you deal with the sudden um, limitations, the physical limitations that you have because of an infection? right so there's a lot that in the future we will have to be deal with both as a society like our communities will have to help one another more um and we will definitely have to all work together to hopefully figure this out and how to move forward um but it seems like long COVID is here to stay hence the word long yes Yes.
0: (laughs) i know Um, right yeah Pun not intended but
1: (laughs) pun not intended but there it was (laughs) Um, That's
0: what it is. I mean, and I remember listening to the term when it first came out. I was like, wow, that sounds silly, like long COVID. But that's exactly what it is. Right. These symptoms that just don't seem to go away. So when we think about the complications of COVID-19, don't just think people on ventilators. Um, I think we are for the most part far. I mean, there are definitely still people that have respiratory failure from uh, COVID-19 diagnosis or having those complications but that is something that we saw, especially when we were learning about this uh, illness in the beginning. Not that many people being thrown on ventilators at this point in the pandemic. But again, uh, when we talk about a complication like this, like long co- like long COVID, um, it is definitely something that we need to have at the forefront of our thinking um, when we think about this illness. And so with that said, <laughs> going into Uh, Sort of the last part of our discussion, picking back up on the vaccine conversation, one thing that has really come to light uh, recently was a possible complication involving heart inflammation, a.k.a. myocarditis or even pericarditis in very young individuals vaccinated for covid-19. And so. Yeah, this is something that is emerging data um, talking about this. We're still learning about it. But after more than 177 million people having received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in the United States, um, there have been these reports amongst young individuals developing evidence of myocarditis. So that is inflammation of the heart muscle itself or even pericarditis. The pericardium is a sac that surrounds the heart or contains the heart, um, and you can develop inflammation in that sac. And so that's pericarditis. This has been mostly seen in male adolescents and young adults aged 16 16 years of age and older, and most often occurs after getting the second dose uh, of the vaccine. There are some cases after the first dose and this seems to involve primarily the two mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. So that's Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And typically, this is seen within several days after the COVID-19 vaccination. OK, and so since April of this year, there have been more than a thousand reports of this to the vaccine adverse event. Reporting System. So that's the VAERS system. I think you've heard of us talking about this system in the past on this show. And although, right, this is a very serious complication of uh, vaccines, or at least something that at this point, when we look at the, the background, right, or at least the typical rates of development of myocarditis and pericarditis in these age groups. um, This is a signal or a number of cases right in the vicinity or temporally or in that time frame uh, after being vaccinated for covid-19. This signal does imply that this could be um, caused by the vaccine itself. Right. So this is something that the CDC, the FDA, everyone is taking very, very seriously. And one thing that we do want to get out there is that at this point, it seems to be very, very rare, um, as far as complications, um, from vaccination are concerned and so rare to the point that the CDC, the FDA still recommends, um, individuals in that age group. So 12 to 15, even 16 years of age and older, um, still strongly consider getting vaccinated against COVID-19. And I actually happen to to say that I agree. I'm sorry, Anastasia, sorry to cut you off, but I definitely agree and I'll, I'll get into that. But you were going to say something?
1: No, I was just going to say like looking at the actual data that was published um, by the CDC, because they do report um, what the number of cases that they get um that is reported to the the system vars is that how you say it mm-hmm. that's I think that's
0: how you were pronounced the 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 acronym but it's the because vaccine it's, adverse event reporting system yes
1: yeah it's v-a-e-r-s and I'm like how do we pronounce this VAERS, I, think, I say
0: I said vars in the past so that's what I'm calling it I'm with you all right we'll VAERS. stick with that the VAERS issue. but
1: like you know in in the age group of 18 to 14 18 to 24 year olds like doses were administered for dose two. And out of the um, male group population of that age group, only 233 developed symptoms after um, using a 21-day risk window. So that's 233 out of 4,337,000 people that got the second dose. So this is after dose two. Um, So. It, it, it can sound like when you just look at the number, like, wow, okay, you know, it's in the hundreds, but in comparison to the 4 million people, 4 million males of that age group that also received um, the vaccine, you know, it's a risk assessment that we have to make. Um, I picked that particular age group because out of all the data, that's the one that had the highest observed number, but mm-hmm. still in relation to the number of doses administered, and this is dose two, so it's the second dose, um, yes. Of yes. the mRNA COVID vaccine that was given, so you know it's something to be aware of. But I'm like a side note is like I'm also really glad that the system exists. Yes. Um, VAERS, because this is the system that they used to momentarily stop the Johnson and Johnson, um, because of the blood clotting. Um, That's right. And so having the system into place is also another reason why we should be able to trust the vaccines that are available um because you know it's at the moment we are while some of the people I've talked to have said like oh the vaccine isn't you know fda approved blah 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 it's just emergency use and I'm like we have vares like this system exists so that we can make modifications and we can figure out how to move forward as time goes on so you know this reporting system is great yes we are seeing um, potential issues that are coming up, but at the same time, the CDC and everyone else that is has the has the credentials to, you know, are looking at this and analyzing everything in real time and figuring out what's the best way to to discuss things moving forward and and keep the medical community in the loop so that they know what to watch out for, you know, especially like primary care doctors if they know yeah. you're vaccinated. Like, they'll be the ones that will know, like, if they see anything different that's going on with you, they'll be like, okay, we have to figure out how to deal with this.
0: Yes, exactly. And um, this is exactly, you know, proof positive that the system works. And one thing, too, that I think is, is really important is just to understand the, right, this is relative as far as when we compare this to the risk of developing COVID-19 and having complications, you know, everything that we've talked about from the respiratory failure to developing long COVID. One thing that has really come to light is that myocarditis can result from COVID-19 infection. Um, So inflammation of the heart muscle, even pericarditis or inflammation of that covering around the heart, these are complications that have been associated with COVID-19. There was actually a study that determined, and this was actually looking at college athletes, right? So we're talking, and these were, you know, top college athletes, elite college athletes.
1: Um, oh, I think I've looking, read that one.
0: Yeah, where well, it's basically they did cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, so cardiac MRIs, and found ev- evidence of inflammation in 59 Cases, right? This was 25, 21 uh, and a half days um, after their diagnosis of COVID 19. Uh, There were 60 control athletes and there were 59 uh, college athletes in the experimental group. They all had these cardiac MRIs and they found it 3% of those athletes in that that, uh, group that actually were COVID 19 positive. 3% Three um, percent of them had myocarditis. Now, fortunately, the majority of them were asymptomatic, right? And so, essentially, they had what we call subclinical myocarditis. Subclinical meaning patients doesn't have symptoms. They have the inflammation around the heart um, or in regions of the heart, but don't really show symptoms. Um, and with those individuals, they also had normal uh, echocardiograms, normal electrocardiograms, so an EKG. And even uh, <clears throat> didn't manifest any injury that was detectable uh, of the heart, but they did have the inflammation. One of the athletes did actually progress to develop, you know, shortness of breath, and had a basically a reduction in their heart function on an echocardiogram. But I say all of that to say that there are many individuals out there, right, including myself, and this is something that I've worried about um, having had. COVID-19 and especially in those initial months after was like, man, do I have some myocarditis or, you know, some inflammation of the heart muscle? Who knows? But this is something that is a real complication of COVID-19. There are individuals that have been more symptomatic. Um, You know, I think everybody might have heard of the situation with Keontae Johnson, the University of Florida athlete that collapsed on the basketball court last December He actually ended up having evidence of heart inflammation, and this might have been related to a prior COVID-19 diagnosis uh, for him. And so there are individuals, young individuals, very healthy individuals that um, after COVID-19 have this very same complication. Right. And so this is a relative uh, sort of risk that we have to think about uh, in terms of what are the risks of acquiring COVID-19 And having this complication versus the risks of developing this after vaccination. And at this time, it seems to be that this would be a a complication more likely to develop after having COVID-19. And so the way to deal with that and ladies and gentlemen, just right, just think about this. Intervention in terms of vaccine to prevent, right? It sucks. It's kind of like counterintuitive in that, hey, a complication of the vaccine might be heart inflammation, but the vaccine might prevent you from, or at least has a very high chance of preventing an individual, a young person, from developing COVID 19 and having the very same complication. And that would be the more likely scenario from them having the heart inflammation or myocarditis related to a COVID-19 diagnosis, as opposed to the vaccine causing that itself.
1: You bring up a very good point, right? Um, How if this study wasn't going on, they probably wouldn't even know that they had inflammation due to um, getting hit with COVID-19. So it just... It for me it raises the point that there's probably a lot of people walking out there that had COVID that don't even realize they have the inflammation because there are no symptoms, right? Just like you know yes. asymptomatic COVID still exists as well. Like you could have COVID and not know that you have it because you feel fine. This it yes. seems to that the same is true is also with this inflammation of the heart, which again like brings me back to the point that this system there's that we have in place, you know. It's telling us that this is something you should watch out for for the vaccine. Whereas if you have if you had COVID, you don't know if you have any inflammation or not, right? Whereas even though you know that this risk exists, um, when you know this risk exists because of the vaccine, you know to look out for it. That's yes. also another thing too. Whereas people that have COVID might not even realize or even notice that this might be a complication that they have. So... Right. Like, it, again, what we're dealing with is like, would you, uh, would you rather situation in my from what I'm from what I'm hearing is that would you rather a take a vaccine that, you know, is being is consistently showing that it is very highly effective in terms of protecting you and giving you a very large chance of, uh, a very large chance of being protected against COVID. And you know what complications are possible depending on the vaccine type that you're getting. Versus getting COVID and not knowing what bag you're going to end up with afterwards versus yes. in terms of like having heart inflammation or even having long COVID in symptom in ways that you didn't even expect. Yeah. So that's and, what that's what I'm hearing. Other,
0: mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you brought that part up. Right. The other complications of a COVID-19 diagnosis. So it's not just the heart inflammation. Right. With the vaccine, I guess you can say that that's one risk you would be taking as a young person, especially as a young male, as this is the group that has seemed to be more affected by this uh, when it comes to this potential link to the vaccine. Uh, But when we talk about that, right, this this very small chance of an individual having this heart inflammation after being vaccinated versus with COVID-19, not only the very same complication as far as the myocarditis or that heart inflammation. But as Anastasia said, all the other risks that come with COVID-19, which include, as we said, the respiratory failure, kidneys being affected, um, long hauler syndrome, pretty much all of that stuff. And then we talk about the risks, right? Um, Especially for young people, because one of the big questions that's being asked is, well, how much do young people benefit? Being that we know that they have milder disease when they do come down with COVID-19, right? How much do they benefit? Well, we also have to consider the benefit for all of those around them, right? Especially those individuals that have not been vaccinated. So family members, other individuals that these young people are going to be in contact with in school or at work um, or in other parts of the community and society. And especially when we talk about the benefits for society as a whole, that's when um, at this point, and this is why I said that I agree with the um, the current recommendations from the CDC and the FDA, in that right now the safer uh, bet seems to be, you know, getting vaccinated at this point, because not only does that individual um, stand a very good chance of benefiting from being protected from COVID nineteen, but also individuals around them in their community will be protected. Uh, because we do have get very good evidence that this this vaccination um, or these vaccinations can prevent the spread of this illness as well.
1: There's also another point that I'd like to bring up. Um, mm-hmm. You, We have seen evidence. Well, what ha- what has been going around is that you can get hit with COVID. You get COVID. You recover from COVID. You have the antibodies. But the antibodies don't last. Right? So... If you got COVID and you're asymptomatic, because this is actually something I had a discussion um, with a friend of mine. Well, former friend now, I guess, <laughs> with a former friend of oh, mine boy. that um, he was like, yeah, I had COVID. I was asymptomatic. I was fine. I didn't feel anything. You know, I'm perfectly normal. I went to my primary care and no effects. And I'm like, you got very lucky. And he doesn't want to get the vaccine because he's like, oh, I already passed it once and I'm good. And I'm like, but you don't know what's going to happen if you get hit with it again now, right? Mm -hmm. Because he got COVID last year, last summer, and the only variants, we didn't have that many variants going around at that time, Whereas versus now with the new Delta variant coming up and it's, um, you know, being more transmissible and all this new data that's coming in and how it's rapidly taking over the variant that is being um, recorded whenever cases are, you know, whenever we count the cases, if you get hit with it, you don't know if your body is going to react the same way as it did the first time. So that's also another thing to take into account. There's a lot more variants going around right now versus last year when this pandemic first started. So that's also another thing that you'd want to take into consideration because you at the moment um, it seems as though all the variants are. You know, if you're vaccinated, you have protection against the, all the variants that are out there right now. But if you're not va- uh, vaccinated, you don't know which variant you're going to get, and you don't know how that variant's going to impact your body either the first time or the second time around. And because I have seen, I have seen people get infected twice, right? Yes. Like one, like once. One time, um, a family member actually got infected and was really, really bad, like borderline about to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But the second time they were infected, all they got was the loss of sense of taste and smell for a while, and now it's back, right? Mm-hmm. So you never know what you're going to get.
0: And there are individuals that have, you know, the reverse where they had initially a mild infection, but then the second time around, they get very ill. But one thing about the variant is that especially with this Delta variant, that is uh, really becoming more prominent in this country and around the world is that it also, in addition to being more transmissible, in addition to it possibly being more virulent, as we said, so therefore right, causing more severe di- disease in individuals. Uh, there is also some data showing that it looks like it has the potential of evading our immunity. So individuals that have had uh, uh, COVID 19 such as your friend Anastasia, right that might even have antibodies, this particular variant has some ways of avoiding that immunity, right or being able to still uh, um, seed infection and not be taken down by those antibodies that an individual might have. Now the the good news is that there seems to be some degree of protection, right, especially from the vaccination. Um, where individuals have a good degree of protection, although not as protected as with the initial um, variants of the virus or the initial strains of this virus. Uh, But one thing that we do need to be mindful of, right, is that, yes, this thing can evade our immunity and there are going to be more variants. The, the, The more this disease gets passed around, the more opportunity there is for additional variants to emerge that could be right more transmissible in the future, they could be more deadly in the future and also could begin to evade our immunity. And so this is this is why everybody is really making that push to increase the vaccination rates in this country and around the world is because this is something that again, you know, more and more the longer it takes to get individuals vaccinated and to get as many people as possible protected from this and to stop that spread right the longer it takes the more we're going to see variants like this emerge and the longer we're going to be dealing with and talking about <laughs> on health in Harlem this illness and so i mean that that's it ladies and gentlemen in a nutshell right and so i guess at this point we can just really you know wrap up and, and just overview, give a, a sort of summary of what we've talked about up to this point. And so I think we're in a good place, right? Especially when we contrast that with where we were with where we were um, at the start of last summer or where we were at this point in the pandemic last year. We are certainly in a better place. We've seen the hospitalization rates, the death rates continuing to decline. Especially in the groups that have high vaccination rates. So, looking at that group 65 years of age and older, right? Our grandmothers, our grandfathers, individuals that reside in nursing homes, in that population, we've seen a tremendous decrease in complications from COVID 19. And one thing that we've seen emerge, right, are complications that we really didn't know about at the beginning, such as long hauler syndrome. And so in addition to thinking about the complications of hospitalization and death rates, this is a complication that is really right up there as far as serious complications are concerned when we talk about COVID-19. And we need to think about that as individuals, as a community, and as a society. And then finally, we will say that at this time, ladies and gentlemen, and this is backed up by the best evidence available up to this point, Um, the vaccines that are currently available for emergent and approved by the FDA for emergency use in this country. um, They are very effective and they are safe. And yes, there are still things to be learned. There are individuals that do have complications from this intervention, but that's medicine, ladies and gentlemen, period. That is medicine. There are you know, essentially with any intervention, it could be a procedure that's done, a surgical procedure. It could be a medicine that's administered. You know, when we talk about complications from medicine, (laughs) you know, the one thing that is the most common complication that we see is with Tylenol, the use of Tylenol, ladies and gentlemen, right? It sounds innocuous. That's what people think. Um, But that is something that causes complications in individuals, individuals taking too much Um, individuals having complex immune-mediated reactions. We see that even with ibuprofen, right? So anytime we take any medication, anytime we do any intervention on our body, natural, whether it is something that is medicinal or pharmacologic, right? And medication, in this case, talking about vaccination, the use of vaccines to prevent an illness, there is some small risk that is going to be, that you are taking, right? Um, when you take these interventions, but at this time, the benefits of this intervention seem to far outweigh those, those risks, including in that uh, group of, of young individuals, right, age 16 years of older, older, um, and predominantly in males that we're seeing this heart inflammation or myocarditis or even pericarditis developing, those risks, we're talking about millions of people that have been vaccinated and a very small number of individuals having this complication, um, you know, at this time, just about a thousand individuals. And so the, the benefits far outweigh the risks at this point. And with that said, I think it is very, very important that we all consider vaccination Um, against COVID-19 with the vaccines that are currently approved for emergency use in this country. And that's all I got.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You've said everything very perfectly. Just like, you know, you know what risks you're walking into when you take the vaccine, right? Like, that's the point that I want to reiterate. You know what risks you're taking. You know what to watch out for. Um, you know, like that if you do take the vaccine, that this might happen, this might happen, and this might happen because people, other everyone else has been reporting it, right? But with COVID, you really don't know. You might get really lucky and feel nothing, or you might end up on the other end of the spectrum and get really unlucky. And then you might see Dr. Shelby in the hospital, right? So hopefully
0: not. Or am I Hopefully not, like, right? Right. Because they got their family members sick. So that's something to think about, too. It's not just about the individual. That is true. But it's about those around us, too. This is a a decision. When I took the vaccine myself, right, it was not just for Maurice Donovan Selby. Um, Although I wanted that protection and uh, definitely wanted to protect myself from uh, having another COVID-19 diagnosis or infection, I definitely did that or took that intervention with my family in mind, with my patients in mind. With anybody that would be interacting with me, right, especially in close range, Um, it was not just for myself, but to protect others as well. And so that's also another thing that I think we
1: really need to think about. That's also a very good point, because like um, there are people that, you know, that might have not told you what's going on with their health that might actually be could be severely impacted by COVID and you wouldn't even know right? So there is also that fact, you don't know how everyone's health is, you don't know what the people around you are going through in terms of their physical and mental health. So you really, you know, aside from yourself, yes, you want that protection from yourself, but it's also for everyone else, right? Because, again, even if we do fully vaccinate everyone, there are people that are immunocompromised, there are people that are undergoing cancer treatments, there are People whose bodies might not be able to develop enough antibodies, but you don't know who those people are, mm-hmm. right? You really don't. So, you know, you're also once I under like, we're very individualistic here in America, <laughs> I feel. So, like, yeah, you're doing it for yourself and you're doing it for everyone else, right? Because it's also another thing, right? The faster we can reach that point where the spread stops, the faster we can work on rebuilding to get to society to a point where we want it to be, right? There's also that as well. Um, And then there's also the fact that there's less anxiety Mm -hmm. because you are vaccinated, you know your community is fully vaccinated, so you will have less anxiety maybe going outside or maybe partaking in events that you would in the pre-COVID days, as I call it. (laughs) There's definitely a pre-COVID and going to be a post-COVID world, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, the point is, is that we are all trying to collectively work together to get to a point where we do not have to constantly worry about COVID. Whereas even if it's not the prominent um, news article or news topic of the day, it's still there right? It's still something that is shown on TV, like I see it on the banners. You know, those banners that are underneath where the news anchors are talking, I still see it. The statistics, the number of deaths, the numbers of cases a day, and hopefully by more people being vaccinated, um, we will reach that point where I can wake up and I won't get a notification off of my citizen app of the rates of cases in New York City that day.
0: hmm That's anxiety provoking, (laughs) but we'll leave you on a good note, ladies and gentlemen. With that said, uh, we just want to wish you all the best, ladies and gentlemen, especially as we prepare for July 4th weekend. Um, I know that's coming up, so um, we want to be safe and getting ready for that. And that's why we did this program at this time. So we can give you the tools and information that you need to protect yourselves and your family Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for tuning into Health in Harlem. And I also want to thank you in advance for sharing whatever you might have learned with anyone that will listen. This is critically important uh, because we need individuals out there armed with and armed and empowered with this information so that they can make the best decisions for themselves uh, from a health standpoint. And I also want to thank my colleague Anastasia for joining me. I also want to send a shout out to the rest of the Health in Harlem team and also to WHCR and the rest of the staff at the station. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, each and every week, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.